Okay, Colossians chapter 1. Let's read these verses together, and then we're going to discuss them and why we're studying them uh, together. Beginning in verse number 15 of Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this to the church at Colossae. He, that is Jesus, is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body, of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations and now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have for these next few moments to give ourselves to your word. We will discuss what your word says. We will observe its content We desperately need help as we observe the content to understand the meaning and the implication. And then we will need help as we process the meaning and the implications, the demands of your word upon us to then live accordingly. To be not hearers only of your word, but doers of your word. To reflect the character of our Christ, to look like him as we see him portrayed here in your word. So guide us this morning, give us wisdom and help from your throne that we might bring glory and honor to you, that we might make known the greatness of your mercy to the Gentiles from the hope that is in us in Christ. Use this time as you will, we ask in Jesus name, amen. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, was our assigned text for this morning. We've been working through Matthew and uh, just concluded Matthew chapter 18 in our look at forgiveness, limitless forgiveness as the way of the kingdom people. Limitless forgiveness being the experience and then the lifestyle 
of all of Christ's followers. Right on the heels of that, we find Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. And in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, Jesus addresses a very critical issue for our understanding of his word. Matthew transitions us in verse number 1 of chapter 19. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them. He healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And that brings you back to what Matthew chapter 19 is all about. It's Jesus addressing the test from the Pharisees. Uh, So I spent time this week uh, digging and working in Matthew chapter 19. I came with a primary understanding already developed for what is going on in Matthew chapter 19. In God's providence, I spoke with a friend on Friday about Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 through 12 because he taught Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 through 12 last Sunday. And I keep track because he's one week ahead of me. And so I knew that he had. And so I sent him an email and I said, um, I'm encouraged by your teaching. I'm glad to know that you're a week ahead of me now. If I'm really stuck, I can just listen to you and, and get all the answers. Jokingly, of course, and he emailed me back and said, yeah, I was loving it when I was behind you. And there's another man that we both listen to occasionally preach. And he's also in Matthew. We're waiting for him to get ahead of us because he's much our superior in preaching. So we had a good laughing moment. And then he said, oh, by the way, um, uh, this is the position I've taken on Matthew chapter 19, which is my own position as well. But after the fact, I'm having major concerns about, about my understanding of a particular section in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Well, that, that, that sounds like that's just nice friends talking to each other, except my role here in this pulpit is to explain and to unpack the word. Nothing more, nothing less. Uh, No special ideas, no creativity, just what did God say? What does it mean? And then how does it apply to our lives? So I'm thankful for the heritage that trained me to keep my hindquarters in the chair until the text is right. Don't come out until you have a word from God. And when you are unsure of that word, do not, do not go off without the full understanding of the text. So, I don't know that we've ever done this here, but as of yesterday, as I read a couple of other articles from a different vantage point, I became growingly convinced that I could not open up Matthew 19, 1-12 with you this morning and in any way do it with confidence that we weren't going to have to do it next week again with the opposite vantage point. So, I'm asking you for patience and uh, for prayer because I'm still working through how we will understand as a church family, really, how we will understand marriage, divorce, remarriage, as it comes to us from Matthew chapter 19. And the words of Christ recorded through the Gospels, and uh, even from the whole of Scripture cover to cover, which has been my desire this week, working from the beginning to the end of what God has to say about divorce, marriage, and remarriage. So that brings us to Colossians chapter 1. Why? Well, as I was transitioning yesterday from Matthew chapter 19 to what we would study today, I, and with the weekend behind me of being preached to re- repeatedly about Jesus, my, my mind kept being brought back and my concern for weeks, really, in God's kind direction 
has been growing that we talk about Jesus and we're we're nearing uh, some critical material in Matthew in the life of Jesus. And even in Matthew chapter 19, when we read his name. I'm growingly concerned that we do not we do not have the right perspective or perception of Jesus when we read about him, listen to him. Watch him on the pages of scripture, interact with him in a daily, a daily habit, talk to others about him. And so my heart was brought, brought to Colossians chapter one, where we have a masterpiece of explanation about Jesus, who he is, what he looks like, how we should think of him. Now, that's important to us for a number of reasons. One, to think of him properly is to know him and to know him is to enjoy eternal life, John chapter 17, verse 3 says. But it's important to us for another critical reason connected to our study in Matthew, and that is our response and our our immediate submission to the lordship of Jesus, I believe is directly connected to our understanding of Jesus. So even in Matthew chapter 19 and the issues of marriage and family and divorce and remarriage, we might find ourselves, because of our impression of Jesus, not responding with a, a humble, desperate, open-handed submission to his word. Why is it that we struggle often to apply the words of Christ, the message of Christ given to us in the pages of our scriptures? Why is it that we find ourselves so much like the world in which we live, and seemingly at times so little like the Christ that is revealed on the pages of the word. Why is it that we are often tempted to compartmentalize Christ and his lordship? In other words, there are parts of my life that Jesus reigns over, namely when I'm having a hard time or I think myself to need something. And there are other components of my life where Jesus has no bearing Oh, we might give lip service that he's Lord of our lives, but there are compartments in which he dare not tread. Why is it that we are prone to systematizing our lives in a way that sets Jesus in his in his place in our lives? Why are there untouchable things? Even the study of worldliness brought my mind to the untouchables, even within the church, things that we dare not talk about. Christ's lordship in our lives practically and functionally is connected to his identity. If we identify him correctly, if we see him properly as he's revealed in the word, we can do nothing but surrender ourselves to him. He is, in fact, our life. He's not a part of our lives. He's not something we've added on. He is our life. This weekend, one of the speakers mentioned about Christ, that he's not our coach. He's not our therapist. He's not the one who is our homeboy or our our best buddy. He is indeed a friend, but he is a prophet, a priest and a king. He is the authority of our existence. He's the one who dictates for us how we live. And so. Our understanding of Jesus has everything to do with our response to Jesus. We've just recently had an opportunity as a leadership team to to live 
in this, is Jesus Lord over every part of our existence as a church? Our pastoral team for the last month, we've had two different pastoral meetings. We have one meeting every month on the second Thursday of the month. Brief, concise meetings. No, they're not at all. They're long and they're uh, drawn out for good things. We pray for you. We consider how we better serve you. We discuss the oversight of your souls and how we're caring for you and then functional issues of our day-to-day life as a church. We have a second meeting that's on hold if we need it on the fourth Thursday of the month. And this month we took both. And during both of those meetings, we discussed an opportunity for us to have the lordship of Christ, the, the perspective of Jesus where he touches everything at this church. We've just read from Colossians 1 that he's the head of Grace Church of the Valley. So that means there's no off-limits compartment. There's no place where it really doesn't matter what he says or what he communicates to us through his word. Several months ago now, a generous donation came to our church. That's nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, We have generous donations every week as you all willingly and graciously give for the furtherance of the kingdom. But this was a uniquely generous gift because of the nature of the gift. So 2003 Hummer H2. That makes it a unique gift. If you're not a car person, that's just a big old beast that will run you off the road in a heartbeat. That's all that is. Okay? We are so thankful for the generosity and the heart behind that gift. And as we received that gift... We then had to make decisions about what to do with that gift. This was, this was no labor of uh, toil and um, pain. This was a joyful discussion about how can we best serve and how can we best utilize and steward this unbelievable gift and something that we had no anticipation of receiving. It's given to our church by a local Non-member, non-attendee, not somebody here in our fellowship. And um, the potential for it was to be a potential vehicle upgrade for me. Many of you know that I drive a purple Hyundai. Uh, That's been a a topic of discussion for many of you in all of the wrong ways, as you've mocked me, and I willingly take it. We've called it the Purple Passion. It recently has been repainted to silver, so now I'm... I'm, uh, I'm working through the best and wisest name for my vehicle now. But the gift was given with the potential of it being a vehicle upgrade for me. So we brought that to the meeting. We've discussed that for the last couple of meetings because the transfer of ownership just took place in the last month and a half. And I wanted you to know about it simply because some of you do talk about it. Some of you have known that something happened and that there was a large black vehicle now parked at our offices. Um, Very large. Um, I laughed about it being parked at my home where the Hyundai was that we would wake up in the morning and it would have just eaten the Hyundai for gas because it's really thirsty. So our pastoral question was this. If Jesus is Lord, if there's no compartments, then how can we honor Jesus Christ with the stewardship of this kind of a donation? How can we make sure that Jesus Christ is lifted up in the way we respond to this gift. And I'm using this illustration intentionally before we examine the first few verses of Colossians chapter 1 and uh, this second paragraph. Our decision, we finalized this last Thursday, 
was made through a long discussion about the implications of such a gift. Let me just tell you what we've decided to do, and then I'll talk to you about why we've decided to do what we've decided to do. We've decided that it would be best at this time for our church family to liquidate that vehicle and to place those funds within our general fund for further discretion and use of those funds in the future. Now, that sounds probably to some of you like a shocking decision. Probably some of you are thinking, I'd be willing to trade in whatever, whatever I need to trade in. Why did we make that decision? Well, one, to be wise in our stewardship of every resource given to us. So how can we best utilize everything that God entrusts to us, um, no matter what, and no matter what the circumstances? We want to honor um, the generosity. We want to outdo one another in honoring those who serve others. We have expressed our gratitude We have talked to the donor about the potential for decisions to be made with this. But we believe it's wisest, both for what this vehicle might represent in perception to some, and wisest for the sake of discrediting accusations about how that vehicle came to be a part of this church family, or potentially a part of my family within this church family we've decided that it'd be wisest for us to liquidate that vehicle and make decisions about those funds at a future point. Now, our third reason in this decision was to provide for a more practical application of the gift. Now, understand a few things that have come to us as we've worked through how do we think about this particular scenario. And this is going to come up again and again and again. Are we as a church going to actually exist under the headship of Jesus Christ? So what would Jesus communicate to us? What has he communicated to us about our response in light of this? One, there is nothing but gratitude and appreciation for one who would generously give such a gift without strings, freely, willingly, out of their heart and affection for what the Lord's doing here at Grace Church. That is undeniably a fruit of the Spirit's work in their lives. And we are grateful for it. And we're thankful that Christ is alive and at work in them. Secondly, we must be practical in every decision that we make as a church family and as leadership for our church family. And so when it came to this particular gift and the opportunity for this gift and the potentials for this gift, we considered it to be a much wiser stewardship for resources to utilize it in a cash situation rather than in a vehicle scenario. These are, these are decisions that we made as we considered, again, the great question of how can we honor Christ in the reception of this gift? And there's one final aspect to this. Some have received misinformation about this gift. And so that has already created an opportunity for accusation to be made about and connected to this gift. And sadly, that definitely has a part in the decisions that we make as leadership here for you at Grace Church. We don't make decisions out of fear of man, but we do consider always how we can remove the glue so that no accusation can stick that would discredit the gospel or the spread of the gospel here in our community and in our valley. 
So those components of wisdom, appreciation, stewardship, and then careful living in light of the gospel are what led us to this decision. And all of those things come back to the clear conviction of the word that says, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he's who the word reveals him to be, then he has to be Lord. He has to have authority. He gets absolute say he's sovereign over this church. Now, what about what about your life? What about future decisions here? What about other scenarios and other compartments of life? Well, the representation of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, set us up to have a proper perspective that guides us as we face every single scenario in life. In fact, I can guarantee the relevance of this text to every moment of your week this week. There is no part of your life, there is no part of your day that is not directly connected to these verses in Colossians chapter 1. We've studied them before. We've examined them at times briefly and at times with more detail. And this morning I want to draw us back to who is it that's the head of this church? Who is it that influences every decision? Who is it that place alone at the top dictates and demands and provides sovereignty in our lives as his followers and in our life together as a local expression of his body. Who is he? Who's Jesus? Why should we care what he says about marriage and divorce? Why should we be concerned to get it right and to understand it properly so that we value what he values? Why should we be concerned about forgiveness because he said to be? Why should we confront one another because he said to? Why? Who is he? What demands that? Is it simply he was somebody who was in some way authoritative? No, he is the only one who carries such authority for us. And Colossians chapter 1 explains his person to us. It explains his work to us. It explains his reward to us, which is us. He gets us. He earned us. The Father has given him the bride, and he will present the bride to the Father. So let's focus our attention on Jesus this morning. And when we come back next week, Lord willing, we will examine what this Jesus, the true Jesus, has said about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. First then, let's consider that Jesus is the perfect image bearer of God. Notice in verse number 15, Jesus is described as the image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint, Paul would say. He is the stamp. He is is all God. He is the very one who makes God visible to us. The Father dwells in inapproachable light. No one has seen the Father and lived. Therefore, to know the Father, to see Him, to have some visual representation of the Father, is to see Jesus. He is the image bearer of God. He is the second Adam who comes without sin from heaven. He's the priority of all creation. He bears the exact character, the nature, the qualities, the power of the invisible God of heaven. He is God. We could stop right there and say, 
Jesus is God, therefore we submit ourselves under him. But Paul is going to stack up the descriptions of Jesus as the preeminent one and as the appropriate Lord for your week and for my week and for our church's life this week. Our image bearing of God as human beings, we are created with the image of God. But we are not the image bearers, the exact image bearers of God because of sin. So, Our image bearing is marred. We're getting right to the Chuck E. Cheese level of my daughter's life. Carissa is three. She doesn't even know it exists yet. But once she does, it will be downhill from there, eating really bad food and uh, spending quarters on things that we shouldn't. At Chuck E. Cheese, you're no doubt going to find at least one wacky mirror or a room full of mirrors that warp and distort the people who are seeing their reflection in the mirror. If we're bearing the image of God, we're bearing it with a warped and distorted quality because of the sin that contaminates us. Jesus is described in verse number 15 as the exact, as the perfect image bearer of God. He has no warp and no dysfunction or, or disunity in his comparison to God. He is perfectly united and he perfectly reveals God the Father, the invisible God. He is a flawless representation of the Father without sin or any distortion. Paul goes on to say he's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Firstborn here, you know this, is not talking about the firstborn in creation, right? This was not the first son of creation. Jesus was not born in creation as a a mere human being. He's the firstborn in priority. He is the primary person of creation. Why? Why is he the priority position of creation? For by him all things were created. He made everything that is. He's the vehicle through which everything was created. It was Jesus who spoke Everything into existence. Paul describes everything in existence with these descriptors. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. What are those descriptions and what do they entail? Heaven and earth is not new to you. That which is in space and that which is visible to us here on the earth, the planet earth, all created by Jesus. Those things that we can see, and we can see more today than we've ever been able to see. We have more ability to to look at the creative power of Jesus than we've ever had in the history of humanity. Those things that are invisible to us. Those realities which we cannot see. Though created, are held back from our vision, were created by Jesus. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities are categories of power within the human experience. And all of those powers, whether it be spiritual powers or earthly powers, whether it be earthly governments, spiritual governments, it's all created by Christ. Jesus made it all, and therefore he is the first one of creation. He is the priority position. 
of the created order. Jesus is the perfect image bearer of God. He is also the creator of the universe. He is the king of every other king. He's the ruler of every other ruler. He's the authority of all other authorities. Say, how does this influence me? This has direct bearing on your week as you think and talk and live within a government system. Some of you have never been as unhappy with the government as you are right now. Some of you are tempted to say things about the government and talk about the people in leadership in our government as if this wasn't true. What we as believers must live with as the centerpiece of our thinking is that Jesus created, established, and rules over all other rulers. Therefore, what he has established at this time, we must respond to with that knowledge pressing down upon us. So we pray for our leaders. We live gospel lives before our leaders. Our submission represents our awareness of Christ's lordship over them. Our exercising of freedom with grace, humility, and with love towards those with whom we do not agree represents the lordship of Christ as creator of every other authority. We must do the Lord's work, the Lord's way, because He's the Lord. He's the firstborn of all creation. He has the authority and power to sustain and hold all things together. Notice what we find in verse 17. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the sustainer of what He has created. We only exist this morning. And if we exist for the next five moments... Understand, these moments are in existence for us because Jesus sustains what He has created. We speak often of the laws of nature. And surely in the scientific method, we are valued and benefited by the, the visible laws of nature and the study of those laws. But the laws of nature are not laws unless the Lord of heaven who created them establishes and sustains them. So when Jesus will talk to us about marriage and about our divorce and about remarriage and He'll influence us in the small things about how we relate in forgiveness to one another and He'll command us to have a certain character quality to our lives and He'll say that we're to be salt and light living in the world and affecting the world around us. And when he says that we'll be persecuted, these are all things coming from this individual who is God, creator, sustainer, sovereign one, absolute authority here at this local assembly and in your life, if you're his follower and in my life as his follower. These truths establish for us a framework in which we live and exist. And everything else that we do, all of the decisions that we make, all of the seeking for wisdom comes through this and through these great truths about Jesus. He is God. He is creator. He is sustainer. And he is exclusive leader of the church. Verse 18 says he's the head of the body, the church. 
He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything might be, he might be preeminent. He is the head of the body. Now, the picture that Paul uses here is different slightly than the other times that Paul talks about the body. You'll remember in the Corinthian letters that Paul talks about the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he talks about eyes and ears and um, the parts of the body. But he talks about parts that are on the head. And so in that picture, he's using the body of Christ represented in the church as the whole body. Here he sets the head as being Christ. The picture is slightly different because his, his object, his goal here is to establish the preeminence and superiority of Jesus in leading his people. Cut off the head and the body has no life. Cut off the head and the body has no direction. It has no signal. It has no ability to move forward. He is the ruling head of the church. And that's true here and that's true in every local assembly that gathers in his name. Therefore, leadership within the local church must exist under Christ. And that must be painfully obvious by their approach to Christ and their study of the words of Christ and their attention to the ideals, priorities, and values of Christ for His church. As the Creator, Sustainer, and Sovereign, it's only natural that He would be the head of the people whom He has saved by His grace from their sins for His glory which is you and which is me if we're in Christ, the church. The church has its origin in Christ. This is the second half of verse number 18, because he's the firstborn from the dead. What is what is Paul speaking of when he describes him as the beginning, the firstborn or first fruits from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent again, positionally And chronologically, Jesus stands as the resurrected one, the one who, through his victory over death, provides life for all of his people who exist in him. So he is preeminent as the one who lives and will never die for all who will live and never die in him. His authority cannot be questioned. His word cannot be doubted or distorted. We must surrender and we must resurrender and resurrender and seek new grace and new mercy to surrender ourselves to Christ this week as a family and as individuals. The goal of the headship of Christ is for him to be established as preeminent, no comp- competing authority within the church. Your ideas do not compete with the authority of Jesus at Grace Church. My ideas and ideals do not compete with the authority of Jesus at Grace Church. His priorities, His ideals, His ideas and His instructions and His word to us are alone in authority over us. From the smallest or most unexpected decisions like this past week, in this past month, to the grandest scale of what we do when we gather together, he must be preeminent in all things as the head of the church. Finally, then, Paul comes back to where he started. And in verse number 15, he said he's the image of the invisible God. Now, notice how Paul culminates this section describing Jesus in verse number 19. 
For in him, explaining this, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul comes back full circle to the deity of Christ as the, as the mark that, that sets him apart for his superior place as authority, head, rule, sovereign, king of the kingdom people. There is no part of God that is not embodied in Christ. The fullness of God. There's no missing component of God that you don't get in Christ. He is God to the fullest. Every part of God is Christ. Every part of Christ is God. In his humanity, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that in coming and taking on human flesh, he set aside the prerogative, the, the holding tight to his rights as God. Leaving behind in heaven his right to exercise his power, to exercise his authority, and he came in humble submission, living as a human being in submission to the will of his Father. But make no mistake, if your understanding of the humanity of Christ somehow limits him as an almost God human being, you will not respond rightly to him. And you have tragically misunderstood his character. He was humiliated for our sakes. He became weak. He gave himself at the cross. But he gave himself as God of very gods, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is what Paul has to say about Christ. Jesus would reiterate these same themes as he said to the Pharisees and the disciples, I and the Father are one. We are the same. So, with that backdrop of the identity of Jesus, Paul moves then into the work of Jesus in verse number 20. Let's just read this and consider then the implications on us as his people this morning. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace here is not some internal mystical awareness. This is peace as in peace treaty. This is as in a document that establishes peace between two warring entities. And Jesus made peace between warring sinners and enemies of God. Hostile in their thinking. Hostile in their lives against the glory of God. He made peace by the blood of His cross. Covering their sin with His blood. Bearing God's wrath for those sinners who would believe. And transferring His perfect obedience to the law of God to the account of those same sinners. So that they were not only brought to the right standing with their sin being paid for, but they were granted righteousness that they might be in the presence of God. And that's us. And Paul can't stop. He moves right into the personal. And you all, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, that's you. That's you when you were saved, when you were six. That's you when God rescued you from a life of crime and overt sin. 
That's you if you're in Christ. Doesn't matter the story. The miracle is no different. This is what is true about us prior to Christ's redeeming work taking root in our lives. We're alienated, completely cut off, and hostile. We're at war with our minds and with our actions. But Christ, Jesus, God of very God's creator, sustainer, head of his church, reconciled us in the body of his flesh by his death so that he could present us holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father if we continue and endure in the faith. Stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, in kind of an odd turn to this week, I am so grateful for this opportunity. Because I think we need this opportunity to pause in the middle of talking about Jesus all the time. The familiarity with the name of Jesus, with a visual picture of an Anglo-Saxon with a beard and long hair of Jesus. With that familiarity comes an indifference and a potential laziness in how we understand the one whom we read about and study each Lord's Day when we come together in the Gospel of Matthew. But not only in our study are we benefited from a proper understanding of Jesus. This understanding has everything to do with how we will live this week. For a while there were bracelets. Well, there was everything you can imagine with WWJD plastered on them. It was everywhere. Everywhere you would find, what would Jesus do? Well, that's a worthy question. If Jesus were in this scenario, what would he set as a priority? I read into the question, give it some weight. What would his priorities be? But there must also be the understanding that we as his followers must, must also ask, what has he said? What has he revealed? What has he commanded today? So bracelets are fine that say, what would Jesus do? But the reality is, as we wake up in grace through the cross that's provided righteousness when we didn't deserve it and has transferred punishment that we did deserve to him, the empty tomb and the life that is ours every day as we face gospel truth, we must be reminded that it is Jesus who now has total rights of our lives. He gets it all. He gets it at this church. He gets it in our homes. He gets it at the workplace. He gets it with our friends. He gets it everywhere. It's all for Christ. We've been made for him through him. We're sustained by him for him. Therefore, we must take very serious and careful attention to how we live with him on a day-to-day basis. You might be here this morning and you might, you might not know him. You might have no relationship to Jesus. There might be no basis of understanding. In fact, this might be the first time that he's been explained in his qualities and in his beauty from the pages of Scripture in your hearing or in your reading. 
If that is so, this powerful, sovereign ruler of the universe, this one who has created and sustains everything, offers you an unimaginable gift. All of his grace, all of his kindness, none of it earned, lest it be something other than a gift. But by faith, believing what you can't see, which is the truth about Jesus and his work at the cross, reconciling sinners to him, believing what you can't see about the tomb and his resurrected life. If you will turn from your own wisdom, your own way and look to Christ alone. He will forgive you and reconcile you to God. He will make peace. He will sign the treaty that ends the war between you and God. And there are no other opportunities for peace. That's why we're here this morning. We're here because peace has been made for us. Someone else obeyed the law of God perfectly for us. Someone else took the punishment we deserved for us. Someone else, his name is Jesus. He's God, creator, sustainer, head of his church, ruler of every ruler. And therefore, we must live our lives with the pressing weight of the person, character, ideals, priorities, commands, and promises of Jesus. It's all for him. We exist for Christ alone. Our church must exist for Christ alone. We must respond to one another for Christ alone. Is it hard? Yes. Is it messy? Yes. We're sinners. Is it glorious? And does it bring benefits and blessings that we would otherwise never experience? Absolutely. Because it's Christ's word to us. So let's consider. Let's surrender Let's be mindful again that he is worthy of our allegiance. Father, thank you for this word from Paul here in the letter to the Colossians. And I thank you for your spirit's direction. I I confess that this is outside of the plans. This study today is wasn't on the calendar. And yet I'm conscious even now that it has always been on your calendar. Your direction is obvious. Your wisdom is flawless. And so we come to this text together and in conclusion, knowing we haven't unpacked everything, I pray that you would impress on us what has been crystal clear in Paul's words in Colossians 1. And what has been crystal clear through the, the broader study of Matthew, that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the promised Savior of sinners. Who is God, eternally existent, the second person of the Trinity, humbled in human flesh. Never losing his deity, but setting aside his rights to operate as the second person of the Trinity so that he might come and obey you even to the point of death on a cross, that He might save and reconcile us. 
This has enormous implications on our lives and implications that we often forget. Father, I pray that this week would be marked by the lordship of Christ in in every facet of our lives as his followers. Impress upon us the reality of his lordship in areas that we have to this point never applied his leadership. Where we have casually gone through our lives and considered him not concerned or not impressed or unimportant to the scenario. Whether it be the smallest details, whether it be the greatest trials or blessings of our lives. May Christ be seen as Lord and may the reflection of his glory as we live our lives before the lost communities around us. May it spread his fame. The transforming power of the good news of Christ. Father, I pray for our church. We're at a critical time in our church's life. Where we desperately need reminded and informed and we need help and wisdom from you to live under the headship of Christ in every decision. Whether it be unexpected ones like we've talked about this morning or whether it be the 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 everyday ones of caring for one another, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but actively stirring each other up toward love and good works. Impress upon us as a family the headship, the leadership, the lordship, the kingly place of our Savior so that we might reflect what you have designed for us to reflect and therefore give glory to your name as you have designed us to give glory to your name. And Father, I pray for those that are here that may have some religious formality, who may be going through the motions this morning, getting their church box checked on the list, who have never bowed their knee, who have never surrendered their heart, walked away from their own lordship and their perceived rights to follow Christ. Open their eyes, we pray. Give them ears to hear and hearts to understand. May they see Christ in all of his glory and the provision that he's made to reconcile them to you. May they know peace through faith by your grace in Christ. Father, I thank you for the privilege now to remember Christ and to remember the cross. This is no small afterthought in our worship of our Savior. And so I pray that as we remember collectively, that we would do so with a much deeper sense of appreciation because of what your word has revealed to us about the quality of our Savior, which then makes the humiliation of his sacrifice so much greater and the quality of us as alienated, hostile enemies of your cause. May that impress upon us the greatness of your grace in making us sons and daughters. These things we ask for the glory of your name. Amen.